Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. What we're starting to see is that you could be a part of the production of a good product, but that won't necessarily guarantee the kind of wage you would need to have a stable family life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. If there's one thing that we certainly must talk about in this podcast is what our fellows write and publish. <laughs> Therefore, I have the pleasure today of introducing our public to Ashleen Menchaka Banula, Senior Fellow of the Austin Institute. Good morning, Ashleen. Good morning. How are you doing? We're doing great, and thank you for accepting the invitation to come and speak to our podcast. Before we get started, Dr. Bagnolo, just a few words on you. Shleen Bagnolo is the Assistant Professor of Political Science at Texas State University. She held positions at Princeton University, the United States Naval Academy's Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership, and Furman University. She's the recipient of a 2018 College of Liberal Arts Award for Excellence in Teaching and teaches courses in political theory and constitutional law. She also serves as a faculty sponsor supporting women in political science and St. Paul's Outreach. She's originally from the South Central Texas region and lives with her family in New Brunsville, Texas. Ashley, anything I forgot or that you want to add to this? No, that's great. That sounds great to me. Okay, so what I would add is that Dr. Banula has often contributed to the Public Discourse, which is a journal of the Witherspoon Institute, and today we would like to talk about one of our latest articles titled Rethinking the Working Class Toward a Multi-Ethnic Conservative Coalition, which was published in November 29th. So, Dr. Bagnolo, first of all, what was the reason for this recent article you wrote? And, I mean, why now? So, I'll start with the second question, why now, and then move on to the first question. I really think we're in a time of political realignment. and. I think the election results just confirm that for us. So people were expecting certain outcomes in minority groups, for example. Polling was showing us that we should expect sort of a major turn to Biden. And I thought that this sort of opened the door to something that I've been thinking for basically the entire four years of the Trump presidency which is that there is a really important relationship between American racial questions and what the American conservative party is trying to do. And on the one hand, the work I've done for a lot of those four years was critical of Trump's messaging on race, whether I was doing that through a forum like Public Discourse or America Magazine, and also in some of the research that I was doing on Tocqueville and race in America or on Latino popular opinion and history and how those things overlap. So what I had seen, you know, sort of working on this critical message is the existence of what my colleague at ASU, Luke Perez, called an unforced error. This idea that within American minority populations, I, I have spent most of my time studying Latinos 
I also spent some time studying Black Americans. There's higher religiosity. They tend to have what is called a sociological profile of familiarism, sort of prioritizing the home and the family. They are socially conservative in complex ways, but in ways that are closer to what American conservatives are looking for. And the sort of entry into American politics of what was, in my opinion, very explicit racial dog whistles kind of was throwing me off because at the same time, it seemed like a lot of what was going on in the realignment on the right were things that lined up with the profiles of non-white Americans, the political profiles of non-white Americans. And so basically between those two things, the opening that the election gave me and then my sort of reflections and studies over these past four years, I came to this article. One concern I have is if you look at the population of American Muslims, before 9-11, they were pretty socially conservative, open to a lot of what the Republican Party had to offer. They felt sort of unfairly targeted following 9-11, and their younger generations dropped their interest in conservatism and then also dropped their interest in their own religion. And they became not a different religion, but broadly speaking, they just became one of the nuns, right? I have a concern that in the younger generations of Latinos that you might see something like this happen. That concern is less than it was following the results of the election, but it's definitely something on my mind. And it's something I see in my students. I have a lot of students who are Latino and a lot of them are not immigrants, but first-generation college students. And so they, they're coming from families with some sort of religious background, and then you see them becoming very skeptical of religion. On the other hand, it seems like the amount of American Latino Protestants is increasing. That seems to be trending up. We are losing American Latino Catholics, though at a slower rate than the general population. The Latino Catholic Church in America is much younger demographically. Hmm. I see. That's helpful information for the future of conservatism, as this is what you know you aim at suggesting things also for what to do in the future. But in the article, you start by saying that you've always been troubled by two features of American conservatism: the attitude towards race being one. And the relationship to free market is the second one you mentioned. Curiosity, how far does your dissatisfaction with the free market go? If I may phrase it, you know, in a very simple way for non-expert people, what doesn't make you a socialist if you say that, you know, there is a tendency toward free market <laughs> that you might be uh, critical of? Or do you envision a more European right, if that makes sense? What I think is going on is we're having to ask questions about the way that we think the market behaves. And in American conservatism, I think from a philosophical perspective, there's sort of this normative assumption that the market behaves in a way that is just, that it will reward labor, that it will reward outcomes. What we're starting to see is that you could be a part of the production of a good product, 
but that that won't necessarily guarantee the kind of wage you would need to have a stable family life. We're seeing that you can invest, you know, major amounts of time in certain kinds of labor, but as long as you don't move up the hierarchy of the business, you're going to be sort of stuck in a range of income, regardless of how important your expertise is or how good you become at it. I actually saw an article in the American Compass this morning that I thought was really important on this point, and it was discussing sort of the way that we assume that we should make wages based, we should base wages on supply and demand. What would make more sense is a model where you have some sort of negotiation or maybe not explicit negotiation, but some sort of recognition between the employers and the employed that there is uh, agency and power on the part of the employed. One of the biggest problems we see is that there's very little accountability. No, if I may just say, maybe summarize what you're pointing at from the lay, very lay perspective on these issues, Mm -hmm. being a free market, you know, it's very good, but like for the individual to benefit from the benefit that free market generates on its own, we need some rules so that the benefit can actually go to the people that are, you know, on the lower level of the ladder of production or in the companies. So it's not only the CEO that benefits from the benefit of free market. Yeah. And you'll need something, not just rules, but also culture. So it came out, I guess, about a month ago that Tyson's sort of upper management and CEOs were caught in Zoom calls making bets on how many of their factory workers would catch coronavirus. And this was a a huge scandal, but it's not really surprising to a lot of people who follow these corporate cultures that there's this disconnect. You seem to say in your article something that is very much along the lines of what you just said now, which is America is meritocratic. You're not denying it. But the merit that one needs, one comes from a wealthy family, is sort of less than what one needs coming from a minority. And you say that that's what you witnessed in your life, correct? Yes, I think when I was younger and I was in kind of maybe more typical surroundings or what you might call more average surroundings, I definitely had this idea of people who are in our best institutions or who are working in some of our best jobs as being kind of creatures totally different from (laughs) myself. Geniuses, yeah. People I knew. Yeah, exactly. And going through the process of um, getting to be involved in some of those institutions, even a small way, I noticed that there were a lot of similarities between people I knew in maybe these two worlds I'm describing, and that a lot of times what meritocratic people in this new world I encountered had going for them were these sort of extra steps of a network or a family that has a culture of being able to professionalize, like to be a part of the professional class. I remember having to learn how to dress in different ways. I remember having to learn how to style my hair in different ways. I remember watching people, students I taught, for example, sort of being able to get into these really nice positions. And they deserved it. But on the other hand, it was kind of this meritocratic 
pipeline that was wrapped up with their social networks. Yeah. And in fact, you suggest, you say, you know, let's think of affirmative action even if we want, but not in terms of race, but in terms of socioeconomic status. Did I understand you correctly? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that would be exactly right. So I'm not, obviously, I think that something like affirmative action that's socioeconomic will still be able to really help non-white communities and maybe even the vast percentage of people involved in those programs will happen to be non-white. But you're not picking them because they're non-white. You're looking at things that have to do with their socioeconomic status. And so you're going to be able to get a wide variety of Americans in that. I remember when I was in college, I actually had a grant. It's called the Tuition Equalization Grant. And most of the people at my school that had that were actually Latinos. I had some friends who were white that did too. And I thought that that actually worked very well. Hmm. And by the way, the title of the show is What We Can't Not Talk About, but we have to be careful in using words as well. We know we live in a time and age where words matter. Can we, should we use the word Latinos or should we use the word Hispanics? Good question. So I think the general consensus presently is toward Latino because Hispanic is making a connection to the Spanish. And some people who are of Latin descent would say, you know, that they have very little connection to the Spanish. They're more Indio or they're more Mestizo or they're more Black. There's actually a sizable population of Black Latins, and a lot of people have a Black um, heritage, even if they, if they don't know about it. The one to stay away from is Latinx. I don't like that. I can probably announce that you're going to be a guest speaker for a panel we're going to have in the spring, and the information is not online yet. It's not on the website, but I just want our audience to know that you're going to come and talk probably about if they will make sense still to use the word Latinos to describe a mm -hmm. population that starts to be very diversified. I've kind of always known as someone who is Mexican-American that there are major differences between what we would call the category of Latino or the category of Hispanic. I think I'm right about the sort of broad themes of religiosity, family-oriented behavior, but you're going to find a lot of distinctions. And one thing that we're seeing is that in a lot of swing states, Latinos are influencing things differently. Yeah. Another thing that we're seeing is that in Texas, where you had support in some of the border counties, which was very surprising to commentators for Trump, you have those populations which are uh, largely... I think you'd call them working class. A lot of people work for oil companies and they supported the president. And then Cuban Americans supported the president in Florida. They have a different profile. And different but both reasons. of them are supporting. Yeah. Yes. I think when we're looking at the data presently and then when we go on to continue to break it down, we're going to see that they're going to have different reasons for doing that. And we leave that to our panel that I'm really looking forward to it because I really think that the issue of Latinos in America, we think it here is going to be probably the issue of conservative politics in the future. But you seem to be arguing in the article already now that conservatives are the party of the working class. Is that right? 
I think they are the only party that is actively trying to be. I think you have people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, whatever you think of them, are at least interested in these topics. And they seem to be outsiders in their parties. In the realignment that's happening on the right, the people who are interested in economic populism are the people who are beginning to take center stage. And I don't think we would call them the outsiders of the party. So as long as things keep unfolding as they are, then they're going to likely be the party of the working class. I'm sitting back, I'm kind of watching and waiting to see, you know, how much the Republicans do actually move into economic populism of some kind. Because, you know, a lot of what they did during the four years of Trump in terms of, I guess you might say, the thrust of what they were doing was to speak a lot of the abuse of corporations on culture. So, you know, that you have a woke Coca-Cola or woke Apple. You know, Apple's an interesting case. There are other ones that have, you know, slave labor in China. And then they have these really progressive personas and they put a lot of pressure on how they're trying to reshape American public discourse. And I thought that in the past four years, you saw a lot of people who did a good job of kind of taking a a stab at that and staking out a position against that. But they seem to touch less the nuts and bolts of you know, being able to have a stable income. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I may quote you directly, because that's something I really liked about your article, you write, call out economic injustice when you see it. Don't just criticize companies for being woke. Criticize them for their unjust wage structures too, or your words will sound hollow and unpersuasive. And that's one of the suggestions you have for the future conservative class. And if I, you know, if we can just look at another suggestion you had, which I would like you to comment briefly was, Stop worrying about the demographic decline of white Americans and using language that denigrates other racial groups who are already here and are ready to be a part of a socially conservative coalition. If I may, Ashleen, what is the language, what did you think, you know, when you were saying stop using language that denigrates other racial groups? Was there anything specific you had in mind? Sure. So I'll try to answer that question on two levels. I Just one from my everyday level, which is that you know, a lot of my tios or friends, they'd say, I cannot believe that, you know, Donald Trump is calling us rapists. Or I cannot believe that he told AOC to go home. And it's people who don't normally follow politics, but they're picking up on these things that remind them of things they've been told in their life regularly. (laughs) Growing up, I heard all kinds of things all the time, you know, that we're lazy, that we're dumb, that we're stinky, that we have too many children, that we're ugly. So I think on the sort of lived visceral level, I would see the response to this among people I know and love and and they'd be really upset by that. But then, you know, they'd also be complaining about abortion as something evil or they would be sort of, you know, a little concerned by some of the trans issues, particularly with children, less with adults. Another thing that I would point to separately from this, the second thing I point to separately than this is as a political theorist, I, of course, you know, pay close attention to 
the people who are sort of thought leaders, whether they're public-facing thought leaders or they're more academic. And I noticed a really concerted effort to define Americans as being Anglo-European. And you could look at Amy Wax, you could look at Tom West, you could look at some of the stuff coming out of Claremont, and you could look at some of the speeches at the New Conservatism Conference where Hazoni was the headliner. There's a real attempt, and I, I sort of understand it, they're having to make an argument about nationalism, right? So they're trying to say what the national identity is. And uh, there is always... There is always the option of defining nationalism as the credo nation, right? Of defining America as the principle it stands for. Yeah, and that's what's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Hmm. As I invite everyone to read your article on public discourse, it can be easily found online. We also linked to it on our website and on our newsletter. And as I invite, you know, everyone to follow your upcoming lecture when, when you will be here and you'll be our guest. And so thank you again for all your precious work and for your study and for your knowledge and for being a fellow of the Austin Institute. Oh, thank you for all your work and thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.